Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 144, Kristen Ranges, Vermin of Proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Kristen Ranges. Kristen is the Educational Director at the Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium in Sarasota, Florida. She recently completed her PhD in Environmental Science and Policy from the University of Miami, where she also received her law degree. Our podcast today features Kristen's new article, Vermin of Proof, Arguments for the Admissibility of Animal Model Studies as Proof of Causation in Toxic Tort Litigation. It was co-authored with Jessica Owley and was published in the Georgetown Environmental Law Review. In the article, Kristen argues that courts have been overly skeptical about toxicology evidence, specifically animal studies. The common criticism since Daubert has been that animal studies are unreliable because of interspecies variation and other interpretive problems. As a result, evidence about animal studies is often excluded or simply not presented in toxic tort cases. Animal studies, though, obviously form the basis of an entire field of scientific inquiry and are routinely used by scientists to investigate the harmful effects of substances. And unlike most epidemiological studies, researchers have far greater control over subjects in animal studies. That thus poses a puzzle. Why is the legal system excluding evidence that is routinely used and relied upon by scientists. Kristen discusses why the legal system should take a second look at animal studies and how courts might make better use of them. Kristen, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. Your article, of course, deals with the use of toxicology studies, specifically animal model studies. Can you give us some basic background on what these animal studies are and how they're often used by scientific and medical researchers? Yeah, so I came to animal studies and litigation through a specific context. So I was working in a physiology and a toxicology lab run by Martin Grissel at the University of Miami. And they were in the marine space looking into the effects of oil exposure from oil spills on all sorts of sensory systems, cardiac function. And when I joined the lab and I started reading about what are the health outcomes of oil spills, I realized that what we're seeing in these epidemiological studies, looking at different cohorts of humans that were exposed, mirrored what we were seeing in the marine organisms that were also exposed. So I kind of dug into it a little bit further and said, what happens when humans take these cases to litigation? Are they using these studies that are kind of demonstrating causation? And what I found is that animal studies are actually not really favored by the court systems, despite their use in fields like biomedical research and things like that. So I kind of just wanted to explore that a little bit. And like I said, what I found primarily in the legal literature is that animal studies are just not favored 
So I dug into that a little bit, both legally, what that means, how they're treated, and that guided my way into the science of it to kind of demonstrate how they could be used more readily. And that's a bit of a puzzle, right? That you have a form of scientific study that is used by researchers in a very general way. It's a common thing that you find in medical and environmental studies. And yet you have skepticism in the courts about whether or not this is good evidence. As you did your research, do you have a sense of how widespread the skepticism is and perhaps where the skepticism comes from? Yeah, so it actually turned out to be kind of an interesting research question and how to go about it, because a lot of times when this evidence isn't admitted, it's not really thoroughly discussed in the actual court opinions. So it's hard to really tally and get a sense of when this type of evidence was proffered and dismissed early at the outset. And it's also hard to understand when attorneys want to present this evidence, but they choose not to based on precedent. So really what I did was I turned to the legal literature, sort of law review articles and things like that to understand what the arguments were, because I couldn't really find too much of that in these court opinions. And it seemed like a big issue of relevance and reliability, the two prongs from the famous Daubert case. And that's where I began to understand how the science is both misunderstood and misused in the context of litigation. And it certainly seems that Daubert itself, in some sense, I think, created the precedent because Daubert and those Bendectin studies pitted animal studies versus epidemiology. And it seemed that the animal studies were being disfavored there. There's probably some language in Joiner as well. So you've got the Supreme Court coming out and saying that this is disfavored evidence and probably lower courts taking up that torch. Yeah, absolutely. And Joiner is a good example of when they misuse or misunderstand the animal studies in the Joiner court opinion, they actually make the distinction by the fact that this is an animal and our plaintiff is a human. And they don't say that's dispositive of inadmissibility, but it's it just shows that there is not the same understanding of what animal studies are in the context of litigation in legal fields as they are used in more scientific and medical fields. So as a practical matter, why is it important that courts be more open to admitting the animal study evidence? Why is it wrong for them to focus primarily on the epidemiology, which is basically what they have for the last 25 or 30 years? I think the problem is some of these courts, they almost have a circular logic to their admissibility determinations. Many courts, especially in the 5th and 11th Circuit regarding the Deepwater Horizon cases, basically they want to see a dose response. They want to see at what threshold do you see these responses? And that's not something that you can really get from an epidemiological study and not to the same extent that you can with an experimental study. So my whole thought was, well, if you need that type of proof, you need that type of demonstration of causation, you have to use the science that gets you that. You can't use a type of science that doesn't provide that result and yet demand that type of result. So that's really what the most glaring issue to me was, this circular logic that you, you need this, but you can't use the only method of getting to that. What about this concern about interspecies disparities, this idea that well, you're conducting these studies on mice, and what you really have or what you're interested in is the effect on humans. Mice are obviously not humans, and so therefore we should be 
concerned or skeptical about the results out of the animal studies. Yeah, and in many cases, that is a fair argument. You can't just use anything to study different functions and, and health outcomes in humans. The biggest example I give is you're not going to study breast cancer in fish. Certain animals just don't have the target organs or the target systems. So of course, in some cases that doesn't work. But the thing is, we know so much about the anatomy and the physiology and the biology of so many species that we are able to accurately choose a model based on the specific endpoint that we're looking to understand in humans. So it's really just a matter of making sure the researchers are taking that into account if it's going to be used in this context. And further, one of the biggest issues too that I saw is not the most efficient communication between the science and the law. So really what we need to do is in these cases, not just proffer animal model studies, but really explain why that model was chosen, how that model relates, make note and actually acknowledge if there are shortcomings to using that model and how they are accounted for in the experimental design. I think it's not just a shortcoming of the science and how it's translated, but it's also miscommunication or not enough communication actually in litigation to a judge and jury about how that model is chosen and how it's intended to be used. I guess this question is related to that issue of communication. In your article, you talk a bit about extrapolation also. So in many of these studies, the animals for practical reasons are subjected to higher concentrations of the substance for a shorter period of time so that in effect, you have is an extrapolation or an interpretation of what happens to the animals back to the human context over the time horizon that we tend to see them in humans. What should we do about that concern about extrapolation? So can courts really be confident that the inferences that are being made there are not overly subjective, or more importantly, in the adversarial context, that the experts are not being too easily manipulated or speculative. After all, what you have here are individual experts hired by the parties in the cases. So when you don't have cut and dried evidence, there is always the concern that you have a lot of bias going on. I guess there are two really big ways to address that issue. The first is to conduct the experimental studies with a range of exposure doses. So when you do sort of a scaling, you take from that high dose in the animal to a low dose in the animal and then convert that to the average dose of a human, you can expose these animals to a range of different concentrations. So you can see if the way you're scaling is accurate or if it looks like there's some sort of dramatic threshold that's not being picked up in your scaling model. So that's sort of on the experimental side. And I also think the other way that we can come at this problem in the context of litigation specifically outside of just the experiment itself is to combine it, use the weight of the evidence methodology to also look at epidemiological studies and what humans were likely exposed to based on air samples, water samples at the time of exposure. So then we can sort of compare. I mean, if we have these epidemiological studies that are showing humans probably were exposed to this dose, and this is the outcome that they're reporting, and then we look at the animal model studies and we say, well, they had a similar dose and we see the same outcome. It just sort of together paints more of a picture of what actually is going on and, and demonstrates in more detail and with a little bit more certainty the causation there. In some ways, I think that the scenario that you present where epidemiology and the toxicology match, that's the easy case. That's 
the case where you'd probably expect the parties to settle. What do we do with the hard case where you have epidemiological evidence that is either shoddy or has low power and maybe it suggests that there's no effect, but we're not really sure. And then you have toxicology suggesting that there might be an effect that mice that are subjected to the substance do in fact come down with some kind of disease. Is there anything that court should be doing in those cases? Or how are they supposed to handle that conflict between the two disciplines? Yeah, so I think that there are possibly two reasons that you would get that sort of outcome. And the first is that maybe it wasn't the best model chosen. If it is a sensitive model, it's going to react differently. And conversely, if it's a hardier model, it's going to react differently. So maybe taking a closer look at which model was chosen and have the expert explain why that model was chosen to kind of explain that gap. Another possible outcome is that maybe there isn't causation there. Maybe the person is experiencing this illness for another reason, not related to their exposure to the oil or whatever environmental contaminant was present at the time. So that's something that the courts are going to have to take a bit of a closer look at. And I think the proffering party would have to look and bring in different types of studies to bolster that causation if the epidemiological study alone is not going to do it for them. So again, just to say that this isn't foolproof. Not all animal studies are going to prove with any sort of certainty necessarily that there was this exposure that resulted in this illness. It's just, I think part of the weight of the evidence methodology is the best tagline here that you need to look at everything in total and animal studies just need to be a part of that pot that you look at. Yeah. And I think that that tagline is ultimately the takeaway from your discussion, which is that in some ways, I think courts sometimes would like to have easy answers in this space, or certainly the attorneys want to suggest that there are easy answers. Either the epidemiological study is statistically significant or not, or the relative risk is high enough, and therefore we have proven that the substance causes a disease. And I think what you're showing here is that in terms of weight of the evidence methodology, Sometimes these questions are hard and they require judgment on the part of the scientists. And there isn't a cut and dried way of determining whether the answer is yes or no. Broader question for you. How do we fix this problem of excessive skepticism toward toxicology? You mentioned earlier that a lot of this had to do with communication. Do you think that communication will get us there? Or is it that the skepticism of toxicology has become a bit too ingrained in the legal psyche? So I think the answer there is twofold. I think communication in litigation in the actual courtroom to the judge and jury is super important. I think sometimes in science, experts make assumptions about what the baseline knowledge is of others in another field. And I really think there just needs to be an emphasis that you need to start from the ground up when you explain these things. We can't dive headfirst into the study and start talking about statistics and results without explaining, again, why this model was chosen. Why does it make it okay that we're using a fish, a mouse, when we're talking about a human plaintiff? Kind of explaining that and setting the stage for what you're about to talk about when you talk about the studies themselves. And I think the second piece is that the field, the literature just needs to be more populated with articles that explain these things, with law review papers that explain why animal studies 
are relevant, why they are reliable, how you can use them, in what context they make more sense than others. When I was conducting my research and looking at law review articles, many of them were from the 80s, maybe 90s. And we've made huge advances in medicine and science since then. We know so much more. So we can't just be relying on that sort of older, outdated literature. And I think we just need to update the field so that when practitioners, when the judges, when plaintiff's attorneys, when defendant's attorneys, when they look to what's available and read about animal studies in litigation, we just need to have an accurate understanding of how and when they can be used. And again, why they are relevant and why they are reliable now where they may not have been before. It's funny, isn't that the weak underbelly of the law always, which is that we have precedent. And in this case, we have precedent that is 30 years old. Daubert is 30 years old suggesting the kinds of studies that you should use or not use. And there is a tendency to sort of fall back on those statements that were done a long time ago and not updating them to new technology. Yeah, absolutely. There's the famous line that the law lags science. And that is 100% true, especially in this space. There's an outdated understanding of this type of science and this field, and therefore it's used incorrectly and inaccurately in litigation. Final question for you. What's next for this project? So are you planning any future work promoting toxicology or animal study evidence? Or are there things that you'd like to see other scholars in the field work on related to your article? Yeah, so there are two projects upcoming for me. One is to publish something that walks through how you can present the case of using a specific model in litigation or any field outside of science. So basically walking through the physiology. Part of my PhD dissertation actually had a chapter where I explained the respiratory system of fish and humans, and I calculate exactly what the dose would be if they breathed in this much at this time on this day. And just sort of explaining long form how that can happen and just having that available. And then the second project I'm working on is an extension of this idea where I actually take epidemiological studies and then I create an experiment and actually work through the science that would explain that in an animal model. So I'm kind of digging further into that. Specifically, I'm looking at oil exposure with zebrafish and how it results in anxiety and depression and sort of these mental disorders that we see post-oil spills specifically the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So those are two that are upcoming for me. And as far as the field, again, just populating it with updated cases, updated science, updated application of all these things and how they can work together. So just basically a refresh of the space and then let's see how it gets treated then. Well, Kristen, thanks for a thought-provoking discussion about toxicology evidence and their use in various kinds of toxic tort type cases. Great having you on the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Early on in my career, perhaps because I had internalized the lessons of Daubert, I too had a great deal of skepticism for animal toxicology studies. The issues of interspecies variation and extrapolation seem to make epidemiology the clear-cut winner. If you want to prove that a substance causes harm to humans, then you should provide studies about humans. But later reflection has led to some nagging doubts. After all, here you have studies that are, as I said before, routinely used by scientists and regulators. 
In fact, you have a whole field that is devoted to this methodology. So how can it possibly be that courts are going to exclude this kind of evidence as unreliable? Surely, animal study evidence is probative. In fact, probably significantly probative. And surely, it's not that courts know better. So what's going on here? As my discussion with Kristen suggests, the answers are probably many. Part of it has to do with the inexorable weight of precedent. Daubert and Joyner seem to express a skepticism toward toxicology, and that skepticism simply filtered down. Some of it may be that the law is uncomfortable with the exercise of scientific judgment, especially when experts are hired by the parties, and then lay decision makers have trouble mediating between warring experts. As a result, simpler rules like demanding statistical significance in an epidemiological study are a tempting solution. As Kristen suggests, perhaps the more honest and perhaps more scientific approach is the holistic weight of the evidence approach. But then we have to ask whether lay judges and lay jurors are really up to that task, or at a minimum, whether they are able to sift through these more holistic weight of the evidence judgments of the party's experts. I'm grateful to Kristen for revisiting this puzzle over the admissibility of toxicology evidence. It's a discussion that is not only worth having, but also long overdue. And I look forward to seeing her future research on the subject. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.